Let's sit. Let's learn. Let's evolve. Let's talk. No more whispering in our minds. Today you're listening to Let's Talk Black Knowing, a show that honours the intellectual sovereignty of black fellows and amplifies the power of black knowledge. And in this, the 20th year of Let's Talk, this is your host, Professor Chelsea Wadigar and Dr David Singh. Good morning, David. Um, morning, Chelsea. Oh, it's all fun and games this morning. Um, look, we've got a show for you. Um, we've had to um, reorganise what we're going to yarn about today because there's so much happening. But before we get into um, today's show, on behalf of us both, we would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land in which we're recording from this morning and the land which you're listening from wherever that may be. Um, David, your headphones are working? Yeah, no, they're not. <laughs> this is despite. <laughs> Sorry. It's every morning me. we come in, Dr. Singh um, has to work out um, how to put the headphones on his head, um, but they're not working. Yeah, look, this is one Indian that Silicon Valley won't recruit, right? <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Bless. Um, look, I've got so much to talk about, and. Um, <laughs> Sorry, just some technical issues. I'll talk amongst myself. Um, Look, I'm tired. I'm tired this morning because I've had like four hours sleep. Um, I'm trying to uh, write uh, a keynote for tomorrow on uh, racism and health. And um, it seems there's lots of racism happening. So it was a long day yesterday. And lo and behold... um, more racism's happened mm. uh, yesterday afternoon. Yeah, just yesterday afternoon. Not mm. a matter of life and death in this instance, but just fun and games, mm. according to our mate Spencer. Mm. Mm. Right, uh, just banter. Just, right? just stuff you say in the heat of the battle. So in case you missed, in case you missed the news headlines just before, um, Ezra Mam, uh, during the Broncos-Roosters match yesterday in Las Vegas... Uh, filed an official complaint against a Roosters player for um, using, referring to him as a monkey. Hmm. And I'm still waiting for Dave to get these headphones fixed. <laughs> Sorry. Here we go. I'm waiting for him to enter the chat. Oh, um, here we are. You right. good? Yeah, I'll need the mic. There we go. Yes, we you could. need the mic. Close yep. up, David. Yep. What do you make of it, Dr Singh? Oh, look... Um yeah, the 1970s called and they're asking for their racism back, basically. Mm. What, what on earth? What on earth? <laughs> the other thing that annoyed me is um, we had some... Oh, I'm going to do a show at some point on Indigenous influences, uh, just, just putting it out there, just signposting it now. Um, but I saw, like, one um, influencer pull together Canva and gave an explainer on why a monkey is a racist term. I don't think we need to do that right now. I, I don't think it's because they don't know. Sorry, I'm laughing. I mean, it's no laughing matter, but really, are we explaining why monkey is racist? Like I said, abolish Canva. Um, right. Has nobody seen those charts that they put up in the in the 18th and 1900s showing Aboriginal people right next to primates and simians? I mean, did we yeah. miss the Adam Goods moments? Just, yeah, right. <laughs> Just. I reckon we have a pretty good understanding yeah. of um, racial slurs and how they're working. Hence, old mate deployed it. Yeah, right. He deployed it. He knew exactly what he was doing. And you know what? It, people will say, oh, it's just one word and 
harden up and we're seeing um, Ezra's Insta account, people jumping on photos mm. on his grid, mm. posting monkey images mm. incessantly. Mm. Now, I just want to remind you, this fella is 21 years of age. My eldest is 22 and I still think he's a, a baby. Mm. Like, um, not to infantilise an average man, but he's a boy still, in, in, in a sense, mm. as a mother. Mm. Um, he's 20, he just had his 21st birthday. And, you know, it was so... If you were on my socials, I was posting heaps about the brothers in Vegas because they were styled mm. up, mm. they were proud... <laughs> They were fine. Mm. Um, not nephew, though, good ways. Um, and, you know, so a lot of us were just so excited mm. for them to have this moment mm. on an international stage in the US of all places, the mm. attention, the love they were receiving. And what got me, and when people um, reference the fact that Ezra was reported to be in tears after the game and, you know, um, some people will have, have framed that as a sign of weakness but when you look at it outside of the context in which it's all situated, mm. you know, it's at the, it's in our highs, mm. those, those, those blue sky moments that we have where we feel like we've made it, mm. we've risen above, um, and those one words, You're that right. one word just pulls the rug out from under us and it has a, it, it hits differently mm. um, in those moments. Mm. Abs ab yeah. You know, it's the shock of it. Um, in 2024. 2024, from a person of colour nonetheless. Yeah. Right. Um, and the kind of, at the end, the post-match interview, right, uh, where... The arrogance. <laughs> the arrogance. Right. Yeah. He had an opportunity to say, no, I didn't, didn't mm. say that, or no, there was, there was no racial slur. Mm. But he delighted. Mm. In yeah. it and said it was all fun and games. Mm. Stays in the field. Mm. Shame. Shame on you, Spencer. Mm. And then Ezra being called a snitch, right, for mm. calling it out. Mm. Like, is, is I mean, you want to talk about loyalty. Uh, where's the loyalty in the brotherhood? Right. Is this our idea of masculinity right now? That you're called a snitch when you call out racism? And, you know, we're going to have to have a conversation not about racism on the sporting field, but... Um, the, the anti-black racism mm. that black fellas are subjected to here from settlers of colour, not just from footy players, from taxi drivers, mm. um, you name it. Uh, you know, and I, I said that this, these kinds of incidents uh, don't just happen in Vegas. They happen in Logan. They happen mm. in Nala, And they are most violent encounters and indignities that black fellas have to experience mm. on our own land. Mm. from people who should know better mm. as visitors to this place, as guests in this place. But, don't. but I'm not sure we're ready to have that conversation just yet. <laughs> when you're ready, I'll be here, Tracy. <laughs> <laughs> to go, mmm. <laughs> Stroking his ear. <laughs> I see you, Dr. Singh. <laughs> Songs. Um, oh, it just... It's, it's, what I worry for Ezra as a young man at 21 years of age with all of this attention, um, I worry for his heart and his soul. Yeah. We saw what it did to Adam Goods and, and you know, watching what happened to Adam, it wasn't that one word. 
it was what everyone else around mm. said and did mm. that compounded it, mm. that reinforced his instinct mm. about the violence of that word when it was expressed. Mm. And we're seeing it now, I think, um, uh, some of the comments out of, from the Roosters camp, mm. pretty disappointing. Mm. I also would love to hear from some of the black fellas in the administration in the NRL to say something on this. Mm. Because our black players haven't been protected when they've spoken out against racism. Mm. And so I'm looking not to um, what Ezra does. I'm looking to the people who should know better, who have positions of power that could do something and show leadership in this moment Mm -hmm. and show the same kind of courage that he showed on that sporting field in that moment. Mm. Mm. Let's see if that happens. And they have a duty of care with respect to Ezra. You would think. Mm. What I have to say is I think um, Preston Campbell is an unsung hero in the game for blackfellas. What he did in bringing the Indigenous All-Stars concept together fostered this sense of brotherhood amongst blackfellas in that game, a game that has been unsafe for our people despite how much we loved it. And you see the brotherhood, you see Latrell Mitchell step up straight away and call this out, you know. Um, That solidarity that's been fostered amongst the brothers in the NRL that didn't come out of nowhere. Mm. Uh, Preston mm. was was the one that's... And you, we saw this, at this, this... And this was the start of the season, right? We saw up in Townsville mm. um, them, that, that black camp and that what was being fostered there. Mm. And there's no question in my mind that that had a role in Ezra's ability to speak out. Mm. Mm. And mm. I was so pleased to see... There was reports that um, last night... A couple of the Broncos players fronted Spencer at the hotel. Yeah. That's how we do it, people. <laughs> Call him out. Shame on him. Yeah. You know? And it was, I saw for Mob, it was hard to watch the post match wrap up because there was talk about how good Spencer's game was. Mm. Right. Not the shame mm. of that act. Mm. Our priorities, right? All mm. wrong. Mm. And because the other thing that made me wild is on Friday I was at the book launch for the biography of Pastor Don Kawanji Brady, Mm. Yalanya, that's the way it is. And look, it was black, David. (laughs) It felt, we're in the auditorium at State Library of Queensland full of black fellas and it felt like we were in black church. There was speaker after speaker that spoke of his legacy and of course it was hosted by um, Uncle Graham Brady. And... You know, when I was reflecting on what Ezra was enduring, on that Friday, um, Uncle Graham acknowledged uh, Torres Strait Mob. He acknowledged the legacy of Uncle Steve Mam and Auntie Pam Mam, Ezra's grandparents, mm. and, and the legacy that they, they left here and this critical black consciousness that mm. was fostered um, during that time. Mm. And, and in that moment, he, he talked about how the fact that Ezra was over in Vegas mm. and he was beaming with pride mm. and in that room you felt the, the pride for him mm. only to have it reduced yep. to the slur. To a monkey. Yeah. Mm. Um, but anyway, I want to um, yarn the book launch. Mm. I, I really hope that the State Library of Queensland release um, that book launch because it was a masterclass it is, I think, a compulsory guest lecture in every critical Indigenous studies course. Uh, I, I bought a few copies of the book. Yeah, thank you for my copy. You're Justin. welcome, David. <laughs> um, this is your week's readings. <laughs> David likes to give reading lists, but now I've given you one, finally. It's fantastic. 
Oh, look, and I was trying not to read it while I was listening to um, the speakers because um, Uncle Vincent Brady talked about um, the the philosophy of the Black Panther Party mm-hmm. um, and everyone got up who spoke. Who, they spoke about what they, what they learnt and what we should learn from those moments and not in a, you know, be like us. In fact, learn from our mistakes. Mm. We made mistakes. We want you fellas to learn from it. And there was just this constant um, message of love and unity and not in the live, love, laugh kind of way, mm. but in something that has to be built as, a, as the heart of a movement. And one of the ch- – look, there's, there's quite a bit that I want to mm. yarn about, and I know we've got a, another sh- whole show to do that we weren't intending to discuss this today, but mm. um, there's a chapter in here, and it was discussed at the launch, and it is called – I think it's one of the most instructive chapters for this moment, Brady and Bonner. And it speaks to the relationship of Pastor Don and Senator Neville Bonner, who on the one hand were positioned on on two different sides of the political spectrum. And it includes um, Senator Bonner chastising the philosophy of black power. But there's a generosity in the way this story is told. And Mob said that um, while they may have been at odds publicly, on, on certain matters, they did come together and meet privately. Mm. And I can't help but feel, and they acknowledged that the number of times that Senator Bonner crossed the floor. Mm. And I imagine that that crossing the floor was made possible by those conversations with Pastor Don, mm. by the force mm. of, of the Black Power movement, despite sitting in that, in that position. Mm. And it made me think about how disappointing this current moment is in black politics, whereby we have the desire, divide between the conservatives and the so-called sovereign, no radical blacks, mm. um, and this—I'm going to blame the conservative side. Yes, this refusal to see um, the importance of black power as the heartbeat of the movement, mm. and that, and seeing the relationship between the two, because some of the troublemaking that the radical blacks do helps you to do what you claim you're trying to do in those spaces. Mm. But they cast us as enemies of them Mm. and don't see us as enemies of the state, which we all should be, Mm. irrespective of where we sit. Um, So in the aftermath of the the yes referendum stuff, I'm like, can some of the yes people read Mm. this book, Mm. learn from it? And the thing I love about the foundations of this text, of this biography, is chapter one wild times and they go to frontier life and Tom Blake went through the newspaper reports about the resistance, Gugilunji resistance and it's fascinating um, and you know there are accounts where the, he, it's described that the blacks up there were bold mm. and despite all the force against them they weren't intimidated and there was a line where they where they, you know, sort of trying to make sense of the the black resistance up there, and they said perhaps the determination they show may be the courage of despair. Mm. Right, when you have nothing to lose, right? When you have nothing to lose. And this idea that the, the radical fringe is, has been. Uh, I mean, the description has been used uh, recently by some prominent spokespeople. Is is somehow beyond the pale? 
um, mm. beyond engagement that they can't be reasoned with, and yet it was the very heartbeat of that moment mm. uh, that uh, Pastor Don Brady was right in the thick of. Um, and I, I mean, you you put up with me in so many different ways, Chelsea. But I'll come in at, <laughs> with, re- with readings. Yeah, I do actually, David. Yes. With readings from that time, saying, "Have you seen this? Mm. This is a black mm. radical tradition. Mm-hmm, this mm-hmm. is black consciousness." And I'm, I'm just struck by, and so on, on, in the States, there was Martin Luther King talking about the beloved community agape. And here, Pastor Don Brady is talking about the very, very same thing and using Musgrave as his church. Um, and, and using the, 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 the infrastructure of the church to, to create a home for blackfellas hmm. that come to this place. And, you know, there was one speaker who said that, you know, we talk about cultural safety, but this... Hmm. This come from this time here, yeah, yeah. Um, and, a, and a whole different conceptualization of cultural safety as people talk about it now. Hmm. But what annoyed me with the the yes no stuff is black fellows who insisted upon black power yeah. were cast as enemies of progress. And when I sat in church, sorry, State Library of Queensland on Friday, <laughs> I felt so nourished hmm. by those stories because it was a reminder of how we got here mm. and also I guess it was it was there was a sadness in terms of what progress has meant for the movement mm. um, and you know how this generation has let down the previous generation mm. in, in how we've conducted ourselves in in centering our careers over causes mm. I think we should be shame about that mm. Mm. But it's it's lovely to. I mean, I've, I've long thought we needed to put together a reader um, of writings from that time, so that when we talk about struggle, it's informed by history and a continuous tradition. And this this book um, it has arrived at exactly the right time. We're going to talk about this time um, shortly, um, and the courage of despair uh, that is found. Um, not in our leadership, but in grieving black families. Um, and, you know, like February may be the shortest month, but, man, February 2024 was long and hard for black fellas. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're going to, um, when we come back, we're going to have a yarn about um, what happened last month um, and honour um, those people that are no longer with us. Um, and um, I just want to, yeah, um, flag for viewers that, listeners, sorry, um, that some of this content may be distressing and disturbing um, and we'd just like to advise that if, if it does raises, raise issues for you, uh, you can call Lifeline on 13114 or call a black Lifeline on 13 Yarn. No more whispering in our minds. Today you're listening to Let's Talk Black Knowing and in this, the 20th year of Let's Talk, this is your host, Professor Chelsea Wadigo and Dr David This Sims. is Let's Talk Black Knowing um, and... It's been a while since we've done a live show, in a few weeks, and um, we thought we'd recap on the month that was. And um, mm-hmm. it felt like every day of every week of last month we were dealing with black deaths, preventable and avoidable black deaths and the tragedy of them. And um, I was a bit thinking about having this yarn today, but I want to bring attention um, to these lives um, and what they tell us about this place. Um, right now, the, the inquest into um, Rick Dougie Hampson is taking place at Dubbo, and we had Uncle Rick 
a few weeks mm. ago in that, prior to that and we're going to revisit um, the progress the progress uh, of the inquest as it's being reported on and um, and the family but I thought we might start at the beginning of the month in the news that was <clears throat> on the eve of 1st of February news broke um, of the decision to suspend the coronal inquest into the death of Dungadi teenager Jai Wright he was just 16 years of age um, and was described by his family as a funny, witty and loved young man. It was about two years ago that he was thrown off his trail bike after a collision with an unmarked police car. Now, Jai's family have asked that the community and all of the supporters hold back on comments about the case specifically because of the legal process that plays out. I think it's important to note um, that as a res- you know, the one of the few recommendations from Ricky Dick were the compulsory uh, coronal inquests whenever there was a death in custody. And so we hear about those. But there are a whole number of black deaths at the hands of the state that aren't guaranteed an inquest. And in this case, the family had to kind of fight to have this considered a death in custody because my understanding was he wasn't part of a pursuit. Um, he technically wasn't in custody, um, but it was a death caused by the actions of a police officer in his duty. Mm. Um, And I guess it shows to us the ways in which so many, these sort of categorical definitions stop us from hearing and dealing with Mm. the injustices that blackfellas experience in this place. Mm. On the 6th of February, um, the coronal inquest into the death in custody of Mr George took place in Cairns, Queensland. Now, he was 52 years old and was described as a very good person and someone who was very helpful to families in the community. He was found unresponsive in the Kawanyama Watch House in November 22 and was reported to having self-harmed alone in his cell unchecked for over an hour. Now, in the months prior to his death, um, he had been subject to an emergency examination authority and was taken to the health clinic um, by police, but this wasn't flagged in the system. Um, at the time of his death, he was incarcerated for intoxication with a reading of 0.203%. However, he wasn't classified as high risk and wasn't subjected to the routine checks that a high-risk prisoner would um, would receive. Um, now, reports say that the officers there had uh, were doing their paperwork while uh, and not checking on him, but above them in the room where they were doing their paperwork was the CCTV footage of his cell. Mm. What makes me wild about this case, um, the when the it they did realise that there was something wrong, and when um, health um, when he did finally receive health attention, the. Um, uh, health professionals noted that he was quite pale and cold, which was suggestive that he'd been there for some time. Mm-hmm. What makes me wild is the testimonies of the health experts and their analysis of what happened to him. So the police officer, who d- doesn't classify him as high risk despite the alcohol reading, said, I don't think there was a bias. I, think, I like to think I'm a realist. 
He goes on to say, I know from experience that Aboriginal males are able to handle, handle a higher alcohol content and still function reasonably. Mm. Now, the, the medical officer providing their testimony says that he didn't appear to be intoxicated, so sanctions mm. the police officer's racist um, uh, alibi, effectively. Everyone seems to know <coughs> Blackfellas in a particular way. We've heard this so many times, these settler understandings of uh, Blackfellow tolerances, um, Blackfellow outlets. Also, which one is it? We can't handle our grog, but yeah. then we can? Yeah. Yeah. And they just deploy anyone to just, whenever it's convenient, yes. to secure their innocence. Mm. Um, there was another um, medical expert who reviewed the case and said, would make the conclusion the resuscitation efforts by police and medical staff were appropriate and adequate and there was little they could have done by the time Mr George was discovered. So here we see how race works as biology still mm. um, and this inevitability of black death. Even in the care of the state, even under the watch of CCTV footage and people who are paid to care for our people... Mm. No shame, eh? And that's right. Race is biology. It never left. It never left. And the way in which medical practitioners um, are reinforcing, and of course they are, because the health and biomedical sciences were the founders of scientific racism. Yeah. Built off racial science. Mm. So, of course, they still deploy their expertise in this way. Mm. <sighs> okay. We're at 5th of February. On Monday the 5th of February, the coronal inquest in the death and custody of 32-year-old Joshua Kerr commenced in Victoria. A Yorta Yorta and Gunnokurnai man, Joshua died while on remand at Port Phillip Prison in August 2022. In the hours prior to his death, he'd been transferred to St Vincent Hospital for treatment for burns on his hands and arms, having started a fire in his cell. He would be returned to prison before he had been formally discharged from the hospital. He would be returned to a cell with the on-site medical unit having disclosed he had ingested methamphetamine. Now, the cell could be viewed via CCTV in real time. And over the next few hours, the prison officials watched his erratic behaviour, which was described as distressing and bizarre. At one point, he called out, I'm dying. But there was no response from prison staff. As his condition deteriorated, the council assisting the coroner noted, it doesn't appear that any action was taken by those who made those observations other than to document them. By the time Joshua became completely unresponsive, it was 8.10pm over an hour and a half, having cried out, I'm dying. It is reported um, that it would take over 17 minutes for staff to enter his cell. And he was pronounced dead, dead at 8.40. Now, unlike Mr George, Joshua died in full view of custodial staff. His autopsy would reveal very high levels of methamphetamine and multiple bruises and abrasions to his face, elbows, forearms and ankles, which were attributed to what was viewed on the CCTV footage. Yet his cause of death has yet to be ascertained. But they watched him die. And they documented it, which is, to me, reflects what Indigenous health is in this moment. Mm. We document death and disease, but we don't intervene on the circumstances that are causing it. 
Family member Mariki Ona said, We continue to fight for justice for our people, a justice that centres the humanity and inherent worth of every single black fella in this country. She has lamented the willful disregard of the prison officers, but also the willful disregard of our society that has ignored this inquest. Mm. And if you can, the pieces on Indigenous X, it's, it's one of the most moving pieces I've read. You know, it just it speaks to the sadistic and sick nature of the relationship blackfellas have with the state. 15th of February. Sorry, I'll, I'll go to the 19th of February, actually. I'm going to come back. The 19th of February, the final sitting of the coronal inquest into the disappearance of Aboriginal woman Miss Bernard was due to commence. She was reported missing by her family in February 2013, aged just 23 years. She was last seen with Thomas Byrne, a 62-year-old white man who had taken her from a pub in Cowan to a remote quarry of which he was the caretaker. He claims to have nothing, have, had nothing to do with her disappearance, insisting that she had gone walkabout. Mm. It would be pressure from the family and Deb Kilroy that there would be an inquest into her disappearance... Um, as well as the adequacy of that police investigation. Now, the final sitting of her inquest uh, was delisted and adjourned as the Queensland Police decided to lay charges against Thomas Byrne. Miss Kilroy notes that as a result, questions about the police handling the case have now been delayed. Miss mm. Bernard is described by her family as a cheeky little girl who grew into a quiet, proud, loving mother. She has yet to be found and yet to be returned to her traditional homeland. The QPS, in announcing the charges against Byrne, insisted that her race had nothing to do with it, the adequacy of the investigation. They would state, It has taken 11 years to get to this stage, but I'm not going to apologise for the time it is taken. Mm. Race had nothing to do. Nothing to do with it. And it took 11 years. And no apologies? Hmm. She still hasn't been brought home. No. Like, hmm. what... You, the, the dehumanisation of blackfellas hmm. is so apparent that you don't even care to say, I'm sorry it's taken this long. Hmm. They could have said that. Hmm. And they should have said that. But they make no apologies. No apologies. And look, I'd love to make more comment on this, but we can't for legal reasons. Hmm. Um, in that same week that Miss Bernard's inquest was to be held in Brisbane, the Senate inquiry into missing and murdered Indigenous women also held a public hearing here. But you wouldn't know about it because there was no media coverage and the inquiry put out no media releases about it. They would invite the Queensland Police Service and the Department of Public Prosecutions to give evidence and they rejected our request... Mm-hmm. to give evidence from the Institute of Collaborative Race Research, despite us providing expert analysis on coronal inquests into missing and murdered Indigenous women and into Qu- Queensland police responses mm-hmm. to women who are victims of violence. Their justification was that, um, because in our work we've drawn attention to the structural nature of racialised and gendered violence mm-hmm. and the cultural impunity mm-hmm. that... Um, exposes Indigenous women to excessive levels of violence. Mm. Not our culture, Mm. not our culture, Mm. the culture of this place. The Senate Inquiry's representative would advise that it was, and I quote, 
not appropriate to prejudge racial and gendered violence as a fundamental cause. So what was the very reason for pulling this Senate inquiry together in the first place? I mean, you're looking at the disappearance of, mis- of Aboriginal women mm. and you don't want to look at race and race gender change. as a form of analysis. Mm. I mean, the Senate inquiry sounds much like the cops. Mm. Shame. Mm. In the Northern Territory, again last month, the coronal inquest was opened into the death of Mr Tamoy, a 66-year-old man who spent his final 695 days locked in a prison cell waiting to be sentenced over a stolen phone and a wallet. He had been given three to six months to live, having been diagnosed with blood cancer. His final moments were not with loved ones but in a prison cell, waiting on a court date. The inquest, we are told, will look at whether he was cared for properly in the prison and the hospital. No words. I mean, we're not going to question why he would be detained mm. in custody on remand far longer than any likely sentence he would have been given with a terminal condition. We can already pre we already know that this inquest is going to say nothing more to do, nothing more to see here. Mm. We did the best that we provided the best care that we could. Mm-hmm. Like it has real smooth the dying pillow vibes. Yeah. A laundering exercise, right? This is why we say we haven't reached our post-colonial moment yet. Mm. Like, this is frontier. Mm. Well, speaking of the frontier, let's also stay in the Northern Territory. 26th of February was the date that Zachary Rolfe would appear for the first time in the ongoing coronal inquest in the death of Common J. Walker. Now, Rolfe, you, you read all that his testimony? Yeah. He'd come out with all of the... the, the, the apparently, there was lots of racist language. Mm. We heard... Um, there were the police had had events, annual events where they gave out certificates. They printed them out, or even mm-hmm. Coon of the Year award. Mm-hmm. They referred to the um, Aboriginal section of the pub as the Animal Bar. Mm-hmm. They made reference to gin jockeys. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Maybe the Senate inquiry might want to look at that mm. because there is a particular racialized and gendered mm. violence that Aboriginal women have long been subjected to in this place at the hands of white men. Maybe we should look at that. Mm. I'm so... And that journalist. Mm. So the inquest... Oh, yes. So the journalist from The Australian who texted Rolf two days after the shooting, mm. assuring him that he did the right thing and that she would write glowing pieces for him mm. and um, that she would um, could disguise it so it made, like, made out they didn't collude on this. Mm. And she got awards, I think, too, for her, journal- she, for her coverage. She did. And then the, I think there was a, uh, a complaint to the broadcast media, whatever, and there was nothing more to see there. Mm. Move on. There's no case to answer. Yeah. Are you kidding me? Yeah. Mm. Remember the Black Journal who reported on, like, the white supremacist meeting, Alice Springs, who was like, mm. they went for her. Mm. I mean, Carly Williams, they went for yeah. her. And she was just doing her job. These ones. Mm. They get awards. They get awards. Also on the 26th of February was the opening day of the coronal inquest into the death of Rick Dougie Hampson. And, of course, we've told you his story and what was bizarre to... Well, not bizarre. 
what we saw in the testimonies from the health professionals um, in that first week of the inquest were striking. Mm. And they... Because they, they, they misdiagnosed him. Mm. And the, the senior doctor admits that he didn't look at his chart, didn't speak to him, um, but drew the conclusion that his condition was related to drug use. And they sedated him for 18 hours, discharged him with Panadol, and he would die just a few hours later. Mm. Of perforate, two perforated ulcers. Mm. Most painful, painful death. Now, the, the doctors would say it wasn't racism. Mm. Their term they come up with this time was uh, cognitive bias. Mm. And it was these patterns in, in clinical symptoms mm. that, that forced him to draw this conclusion. Yet in the same breath, he also says, oh, no, his clinical symptoms didn't match the diagnosis he gave him. Mm. So, again, which one is it? Cognitive bias. It's, just, it's a euphemism for stereotype, right? Racial stereotype. And, I mean, the family walked out of the inquest when they were given an apology, and I don't blame them because... The, the good medical doctor would say, well, I didn't know he was Aboriginal either, mm. and then go on to say, well, marijuana use is, is pretty high mm. in the Indigenous community here. Definitely. Again, which one is it? Mm. Mm. Um, standing outside of the coroner's court, Uncle Rick stated, the doctors and nurses who have given evidence have said they don't recall important details about our son's last hours and the details of treatment provided that potentially cost Dougie his life. How dare they forget our son? My family have relived and gone over every moment of Dougie's last hours in painful detail for the past two and a half years. Why do they get to forget when we have to remember everything? Mm. The inquest continues this week, um, and we'll be talking more about that next week in terms of what conclusions they arrive at. Um, But we ain't through February yet. Um, I want to return to earlier last month and we see on the 15th of February in Victoria, WorkSafe Victoria would announce that it had charged Monash Health for allegedly exposing a 28-year-old Palawa woman to health and safety risks while in their care. Ashley Sue Chatters took her life at Dandenong's hospitals, Dandenong Hospital Psychiatric Unit on the 25th of February in 2022 four days after being admitted into care. Now, Ashley's family have been fighting for a coronal inquest into her death. Her mum said that she had faced systemic racism in the mental health sector that undermined her ability to get appropriate care. Her mum, Tara, says she was labelled just another black fella. They would look at her as an Aboriginal girl and think she was a drug addict, even when the test results didn't show that. Her mum said... I don't want another Aboriginal girl to die because people just look at her like she's not worth saving. Yet on that same day, on the 15th of February, Michaela Owens-Watts, a proud Aboriginal woman, died by suicide in St Vincent's psychiatric unit. She had attended an Aboriginal service and was referred to the psychiatric ward for help, having experienced suicidal thoughts. She was given a sedative and left in the room for more than half an hour. She was about to graduate with a Bachelor of Indigenous Studies at Melbourne University and was working part-time in the Office of Public Prosecutions with aspirations to work in child protection as a lawyer. Sorry, again, no words. Now, in February, the, um, we, would, we would hear the Close the Gap annual report um, and reports of failures, but none of them spoke to these cases. Mm. 
the circumstances of these deaths. The Productivity Commission will release their review of the part national agreement and they apparently spoke unapologetically about racism. No, they didn't. Mm-hmm. Um, they ignored all of our scholarship. Mm-hmm. They ignored all of these cases mm-hmm. and made it about administrative mm-hmm. nonsense. Shortcomings. Mm-hmm. Shame on the Productivity Commission. Mm-hmm. If you're going to talk about racism, then do it properly. Yeah. Like, this is the reality of racial violence. This is only February, mm. and this is the only, only the stories that have been reported on mm. in this month. And all the attention that was, that was, the applause given to the Productivity Commission for speaking mm. on racism. No, it is the families that are doing this work, mm. that, are, that are undertaking this fight in their, um, you know, the courage of despair. And, and you're riding on their coattails. This is well, erasing, yeah, right. erasing the violence that they're experiencing. <clears throat> you know, you're sanctioning the state, making it seem as though um, mm. reform is offering us anything. It's not. Mm. Do better. Because these deaths will continue. And all of these, 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 these tragic stories are all interrelated. They're all connected. Mm. You know that... and. And are connected to those slurs on sporting fields. Mm. I'm not seeing black fellas as human, as deserving of care. Mm. I mean, so many of these happened under the watch of the state. Mm. And, you know, a big emancipatory moment is reporting on black deaths in custody in real time. They've got better at documenting our deaths. Mm. With no discernible impact on those deaths. Other than better stats. Don't get me started on data sovereignty. Mm. Honestly, Indigenous public health needs to do better. And that's what I'm going to rouse about tomorrow when I go down to Sydney. Sorry. Mm. Spoiler alert. It's such a conservative space and it's doing injustice to black families. By not speaking about the health impacts of racial violence, it literally is a matter of life and death. And beyond these cases, there are all kinds of violence that is being visited upon black families, on black homes that is making it hard for people to survive in this place. Mm-hmm. Sorry, I'm wild. I'm, we are very fortunate to have a guest in the studio who's going to, I guess, give words to what black bodies are feeling in response to these. And I want to apologise to Mob. I don't tell these stories um, in an extractive way. I, I, I wanted to bring them to you um, to be instructive. Mm-hmm. Um, that we all need to do better. We need to speak up and we need to do something in our respective spaces about what is happening here and not let families suffer alone in silence. Um, but I want to introduce to my sister, Joy. Joy Newman, who has joined our team at Corumba Institute. And as part, if you work with me, you've got to come to the weekly reading and writing group and share writing, um, whatever that writing is, um, because we're forging a black intellectual tradition um, based on the love and unity um, that we've been called to create. And um, Joy um, uh, reflected on some yarns we were having um, last month. And yeah, So, Joy, you want to introduce yourself first? Sorry to... You're right. Thank you. Thank um, you. Big auntie, Professor Wardigo. <laughs> Go away. SSS, <laughs> thank you. Listen, it's such an honour, I think, um, to sit here with you and Dr Singh. Um, this is special. You don't say that at work. Yeah, like, yeah man. you know, everyone's tuning in. I better be professional. <laughs> That's not your voice. 
I'm trying my best. Mm-mm. Um I'm trying my best to understand the colony, really. Because mm. what you just expressed I think is really powerful and I hope everyone's feeling it through these microphones. Mm. Um it's really sensitive at, for me right now because I just actually got off the phone to Annie Sharon, um, Lala's mum. And um that's her name. Mm. Um that's her name. So <clears throat> I think um you know, for me, when I get sad, um, I used to fight a lot, but I stopped fighting, so I want to feel the sadness. And then so I write. Mm. I write letters. Um, I've been writing probably more than... I'm almost up to a 1,000 letters. I just write letters because mm. I'm always sad about what happens to all the babies, the black babies that keeps getting killed. Um, and I think Lala, in this case, got killed. I just want to put it out there. The hospital mm. killed her. Um, I still feel Annie Sharon's words just sitting in me because... We just literally yarned for maybe half an hour, 40 minutes. Um, so I was fortunate enough to have that yarn with her before I could come on to read what I wrote mm. um, um, to, my, <coughs> to Lala, um, her family, her mob, her mom, her dad. Um, so just um, I'll just have to sort of say now that I, I often... Um, stop talking English at some point because I feel something and then my grandmothers come mm. into my spirit and say it. So there'll be points in which maybe when I read this letter, um, there might not be any English. So just wanted to make sure you people know that. Um, so uh, I'll just start off. And um, <clears throat> uh, so... Excuse me. I'm just gonna. I'm just trying to breathe at the same time while I start this. So, dear Lala, dear Macaulay, <clears throat> Ali Boy sent me Tim's message at 8:51 a.m. He said, "Very sad for this young woman and M family." So I opened the article. I look. We've lost everything. You had a duty of care. You failed. You failed to protect my child. You failed to keep her safe. You failed to keep her culturally safe. My child is gone and I can't bring him back. Dear Lala, I'm sorry, you're just a baby, only 24. Because my eldest daughter, culturally Emmy, only 23, got two children, two kids. I'm so sorry I said your name too, because in Lagal, in language, that means you belong to nations and you are our child. Anisharin, Natanmun, nations, we're with you today. And we wrote you into our writing group because some of us here can't sleep. We can't sleep like her, just like she said. I can't sleep, help. So they kill her instead. And then they let her die slowly. 720. 7 a.m. next day, I hear the meditative Lord Krishna flute music in my headphones on loud. I close my eyes, they'll have platform two. The PA says platform one, Beanley Express train. And when I look closer to the back of my eyelids, Lala dear, I let you into my soul to hug you. I woke up tired, thinking it was my iron problem, but it's you. Your passion is justice. 
you were ready to graduate this year. You wanted to be a lawyer, to work in child protection. What a determined child. Unprotected, yet your strength was for the same system that took your life. No more whispering in our mind. Let's talk Monday to Friday at 9am on AAA Murray Country, the National Indigenous Radio Service and iHeartRadio. You can catch up on AAA.org.au, proudly supported by the Community Broadcast Foundation.